Conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you. Welcome to the Leadership Space podcast, where we take up the big questions that are the daily fare for leaders across the incredible part of our economy, the social purpose sector. We talk to CEOs, founders, directors and innovators who are transforming the world for good. I'm Elise Cernick and I'm the Managing Director of Leadership Space. We're all about thriving social purpose organisations and we focus on the areas of leadership and culture to achieve that. I'm really excited and thrilled to be bringing you a fantastic guest today. I met Michael Trail around a decade ago, but I'd heard about him well before that. He's someone who's very much contributed to my own professional growth and many others. Uh, He's been part, I think, of a profound change, actually, in the Australian social sector. Michael joined Social Ventures Australia, known to most as SVA, as the founding CEO in 2002, and he ran it for 10 years in partnership with the equally impressive Jan Owen. Michael came to SVA after 15 years as a co-founder and executive director of what has been called the Millionaires Factory, Macquarie Group. Very importantly, he came from Macquarie Direct Investment, which means his commercial job was all about investing and scaling social uh, successful businesses, successful commercial businesses. I had the privilege of working in the consulting arm of SVA for four years, and so I've had a fair bit to do with Michael over these years. Now, if you haven't heard of SVA, then this description, I think, by a social researcher and the author of 16 books, Hugh Mackay, is a pretty good one. He says, The genius of Social Ventures Australia was that it supported philanthropy with clear-eyed business acumen. It was a revolutionary approach to closing the gap between privilege and poverty. A fascinating example, I think, of what this means in practice is the role that SVA um, quite notoriously played in the establishment of Good Start Early Learning, and particularly Michael, actually. Um, And again, in Hugh Mackay's words, the tale of SVA's move to rescue the collapsed and discredited ABC childcare group and convert it into a non-profit chain of childcare centres reads like a corporate thriller. It's a tale of how a group of financial high flyers found a way to run a multi-million dollar business devoted entirely to the creation of social good rather than profit. Today, Michael is chair of Good Start Early Learning. He's the chairman of Ascetic, a director of MH Carnegie & Co, Sun Super, and a member of the Council of the National Museum of Australia. In 2010, Michael was made a member of the Order of Australia in recognition of his services to non-profit organisations. Welcome, Michael. Nice to be with you, Elise. Thank you. I've been enjoying your book, Jumping Ship, immensely. What was has been interesting to me as I read it is that this notion, the metaphor that you use of jumping ship, in some ways is starting to not fit for me. I had this image as I read the book of almost like a those islander canoes with the two bows and somebody nimble moving between the non-profit and the commercial, a continuity I've read in your history that, um, yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, it's an it's a interesting title, jumping ship, and I think you're right. You know, there's something kind of cute about the idea of jumping ship from one supposedly career in one world to a very different career but I think the truth is uh, as the book hopefully teases out that in terms of my background and the values that I grew up uh, within a pretty tough community but values around family and community I think have been a constant thing in my life and Mm. I feel very strongly that 
the uh, distinctions in many ways between the business world and the social purpose world are often pretty artificial, actually. I've, I've met plenty of decent high integrity people in the business world. I had the privilege of working mm. with Macquarie Group for 15 years and that was overwhelmingly a positive experience. Uh, equally, I've had an enormous um, learning journey and continue to do in the social purpose world. But the, mm. the idea which is kind of implied in the book, which I was, I was on the receiving end a lot of when I mm. did jump ship and started non-profit was that in some way I'd kind of jump from the dark side to the good side and uh, I always felt a discomfort with that so yes jumping ship is a metaphor for something but at another level it's uh, it's perhaps slightly misleading yeah yeah and I think that's interesting your reflections that there are good people on both sides smart people on both sides that there isn't kind of uh, and the way that you've your journey and your interest in the sector seems to have been very long-standing or the interest in perhaps not the sector but the interest in social change or doing good or being a, a, a citizen uh, was is a long-standing one and oh, look I'd like, I think that's true and I think again the book going back into the back into the history you know there's that great Jesuit line show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man so the formative influences mm. for me were very much around a set of values and an interest in the broader community that I grew up at, at home with. And I think, in a sense, the opportunity at Social Ventures was in language I could hopefully articulate more clearly now than I could have in 2001 and 2002, but it was mm. profoundly about could you find smart ways to connect head and heart? Were there business and strategic skills that I'd learned in a 20-year career in private equity and at Macquarie Bank and elsewhere that would be helpful and relevant in driving a social purpose agenda. Mm. And I knew that I wasn't alone in wrestling with that question. So one of the things that struck me when I had my first interviews with the thinkers and non-profits who were behind the idea of the Social Ventures Initiative, mm. as, as it was then called, was that I, I knew from a bunch of conversations, I wasn't the only one who was thinking, how can I try and use those skills uh, in ways that might make some sort of difference? So I felt... I felt it and it was captured in the original material around the Social Ventures Initiative that it was an idea for which the time uh, has come and mm. I found that incredibly powerful mm. and alluring. Mm. Yeah, and, and so when you, back in 2002, what did, you, what did you see in the non-profit sector that you thought you were bring? you know, the commercial sector had something to offer or vice versa? What were you looking at that you saw? There were a couple of things. So the first was that the specific business plan for Social Ventures Initiative, which became Social Ventures Australia, was a model in the US of this so-called venture philanthropy. So it was very explicitly about can you use business and private equity disciplines to provide funding, mentoring engagement and strategic focus support, not for business entrepreneurs, but for social entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that was the hypothesis. And there were a number of organisations in Australia in uh, the US that were doing that. And the idea was, well, there should be an opportunity to do a similar thing in Australia. Mm -hmm. The second thing was, which was more personal, was that I'd been thinking for some time about how can I engage more fully in the social purpose world. So it was an idea which resonated, but what I didn't know really was would there be a pool of social entrepreneurs and ideas and programs that would be a receptive audience and the challenge which faces all startup non-profit CEOs which is what I was on February the 4th 2002 <laughs> the day that I started was how do you 
make that real? Is there really a demand for that? And obviously then the non-trivial non-profit challenge of trying to build an organisation and a a sustained funding model to support and nourish that. Mm. Yeah, and I remember it's in your book too, and I've heard you say it before, that what you knew about the non-profit sector back in 2002 would fit on a postage stamp. That was very true. Yeah. Yeah, so I I, I think there were... That was understandably the the cause of kind of considerable nervousness and anxiety on my part and that of others. The uh, there were a couple of data points that were very helpful in affirming though. One was a vivid conversation I remember with the board, and part of the launch we had generous funding support from the AMP Foundation. So our launch program was an initiative called the SVA Big Boost, and the idea was we'd have a pool of funding. And it wasn't massive dollars; it was two hundred and fifty thousand. So we thought that'd be spread possibly a bit thin, but the strong reassurance from the founding board and the non-profit CEOs who did know the sector a lot better than me was, don't worry about that, Michael. If you put a shingle up saying you've got funding available, there will be people and there'll be plenty of them and organisations who come forward and they were right. Mm. The second data point, which was an early lesson, was this idea that to engage in the sector, and it was very good advice from somebody who had a considerable and successful career in both the business and social purpose worlds was, Michael, you have to understand when you're engaging with the social purpose non-profit world, there'll be a lot of scepticism, there'll be a big elephant in the room about what's your background, what's your credibility. And even if the people you're dealing with don't say it explicitly, understand that the subtext of a lot of their conversations will be, we don't care what you know until we know that you care. Mm. And I thought that was quite profound and very true so that notion of listening building trust and relationships and that this would be a game of patience and understanding uh, particularly given my relative lack of depth of knowledge in the sector so Mm -hmm. to have a board of non-profit ceos and as you know my uh, my great uh, friend and colleague jan owen Mm -hmm. who i describe as a serial and successful social entrepreneur and who figures rightly and prominently in the book as a key part of the founding architecture when she joined a few months after the establishment of SVA. I think in and of itself, the way Jan and I worked together effectively was a good demonstrator that you could have, on the one hand, me as the stereotypical ex-private equity, ex-millionaires factory, and on the other hand, he's the do-gooder in the hair shirt, the social entrepreneur, and we worked out pretty quickly that we're really quite strongly aligned on most of the key things and the effectiveness of that professional partnership I think was demonstrated to the organisations and the social entrepreneurs that we wanted to work with Mm. that you could actually make one plus one equal a bit more than two. Mm. And, you know, as as I've watched you over the years and been reminded of all of that uh, through reading, reading the book, I... The stories of what you achieved at Macquarie, the growth stories, the businesses that flourished with backing is really striking. What was it? Can you tell us about what happened when you started applying that knowledge in the sector? Yes, so the lessons and learnings from Macquarie Bank in the commitments funding investments that we made and we invested in 42 businesses and that uh, involved a total capital pool of pretty close to half a billion dollars and look the defining lesson of it will sound cliche but it was absolutely true that the driver of success was backing the right people Mm. 
the right founders, the right CEOs, and obviously attached to that some pretty thorough industry analysis as well. But the privilege of that experience from my late 20s to 41 when I left a full-time career at the bank was if you listen and learn, and I'd like to think I did both of those things, you really build a stock of experience sets around what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the plausible hypothesis in starting social ventures was that hopefully a chunk of that and I always felt hopefully at least 70 or 80% of that would be helpful or relevant if it could be applied sensitively to a different social purpose world would be true, mm-hmm. i.e. find people who know what they're doing, look for programs and organisations that are building, that have got evidence that what mm-hmm. they're doing is working and make a difference and provide them with the support, not just the funding, but the advice, engagement, around strategy, around the sort of things that we'd done, I think, reasonably effectively at Macquarie, where often the writing of a cheque was the smaller part of actually uh, greater value added in accessing and tapping broader networks of support that could help mm. those organisations grow. And so the, the early experiments at SVA were really, could you apply that model of venture capital support to the social entrepreneurs and if they were receptive and wanted to engage, would that yield the same results? And I think the, at the heart of SVA, and it continues to this day under the leadership of my successor, Rob Coscart, is that alchemy of finding people who are running great programs, are interested in scaling and growing the reach of their work. And where that works, and there's enough data points, as you know, around some of the organisations we've had the privilege of working with closely, like the Beacon Foundation, mm. Uh, who do terrific work and bring employment opportunities and pathways to encourage kids in some of the toughest schools in the country. So when we met them in 2002, they were a successful Tasmanian-based program in half a dozen schools. You know, now they're, 15 years later, they're in 140-plus schools and they're changing lives and they'd be kind enough to say that that strategic a network partnership with SVA was pretty critical in that mm. growth. So, you know, that's that's hugely gratifying when you can have those partnerships and relationships and mm. see that with the passage of time they have made a difference. Mm. It, and it's interesting, and I'm reflecting as you speak now, that, you know, those early social on, uh, enterprises that you invested in were quite small in comparison to the large organisations you were used to investing in, am I right, through Macquarie Group. It sounds like the lessons applied, though, that whether these were small organisations or large, that actually there's this, there's a consistency in what you've found works, you know? Yeah, I think, I think there was a, a high degree of consistency. And actually, to your point, the parallels, I think, were incredibly close. We did a major strategic review in 2009, 2010, and we analysed quite closely the spread of ventures that we'd supported and what had worked and what hadn't worked particularly well. And one of the defining conclusions of that was that the organisations, the earlier stage startup organisations at SVA uh, hadn't worked brilliantly. You know, that that higher risk end of the spectrum had not been particularly effectively done. Mm. And that was actually a replica of the commercial experience. Our focus at Macquarie was organisations where there was a track record, there was evidence that there was a chief executive who was doing a good job, but there was still plenty of capacity to grow. Mm. And the truth was at SVA, the most successful partnerships were where we'd identified programs where 
as with Beacon, they're in six schools, which is still small scale, but you could really scratch and smell and mm. look at what was the performance of those schools. Mm. Um, so I think in the most successful engagements we had, there was enough evidence of quality of leadership, quality of program to take and scale and grow that. I think the other defining lesson out of 2009 and 10 when we reviewed that was we learned to develop a quite tight screen about what we called capacity to engage. And capacity to engage was on the part of the social entrepreneur a very three-dimensional understanding that a partnership with social ventures was actually not just about the funding, but it was about the engagement in terms of the strategy and the growth. And we, we never pretended to be a particularly easy partner in the sense that we were challenging and demanding. We wanted results and outcomes. We felt mm. we had that duty of care to our funders. I was pitching to funders on the basis, you made money because you were smart and disciplined. When it comes to the act of giving it to organisations, surely you'd want to pl- apply the same set of metrics rather than it just be thrown away. And, and that was a core part of that was the accountability and responsibility we felt that our social investment in the organisations we backed um, provided evidence of results. And where it didn't, which was a hard thing to do, we were quite transparent about what wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And that meant not continuing funding in some cases, exiting programs uh, that weren't working, So testing for that capacity and the genuine desire to engage, and I think in hindsight our biggest mistakes were with CEOs who might have said that or implied that, but they weren't really up for that. And so I think we learned to be much more Mm. thoughtful in terms of those partnerships to establish whether that capacity to engage really existed. Mm. Yeah, and I mean what I love about what you're saying and resonates for me in my work is that you're backing success and is it you know sometimes I hear that sort of uh, sensitivity or a preconception perhaps in the sector that if you are getting any kind of support mentoring coaching development investment that's got a capacity building component that it's somehow a marker of your failure that we should you know in the sector you should you sort of need to go it alone is is part of what I'm hearing yeah. you say I think I think that's a that's, a, that's still an accurate observation probably in too many parts of the sector, mm. I think. And I'd like to think SVA and the work we've done has contributed to that. But there's been, a, I think, a bit of a sea change over the last 10 to 20 years in the fact that many philanthropists, I think, are at an individual corporate level being a bit more clear and explicit about we want to invest in you we want to see evidence that what you're doing is working we want to engage in a supportive way but we do want transparency and clarity around outcomes and um, so I think the ground is shifting on that and equally I I understand and respect this is a this is a double-edged sword there are many cases where uh, corporates or individuals have an unrealistic set of expectations and are uh, either in some cases interfering or I've certainly seen examples where you can have multiple funders with different expectations Mm. of reporting that's quite confusing and incredibly draining and time Mm. demanding for the organisations they're funding and supporting. Mm. So I think there are challenges both ways, Mm. but I think... It's a really good partnership where you're actually genuinely interested in the leader thriving and achieving what their vision is and the people within that organisation fulfilling their potential as opposed to sort of here's the hurdle jump this high, you know. That's right. And I think, again, what's the solution to that? 
reflecting on those lessons from the first five to eight years of SVA's operations, you know, this will sound like it's in the bleeding <laughs> obvious capa- uh, department, but really being quite explicit and dimensional about here's how we operate, mm. here's how we work, here's what our expectations are. Do they align with how you see it and really pushing that, what Jan Owen would call the fierce conversation and aiming to have that up front? Because I think if you can do that with integrity on both sides. Mm-hmm. I think one of the advantages for us at SVA was that we were both a grant maker but also a grant seeker. You know, So that was really quite helpful because I knew, and I can think of examples in the early years, where we were seeking funding and uh, I think some of my biggest mistakes as a CEO were either wasting time with funders where there wasn't an alignment and we we got a bit smarter around that. So we realised mm-hmm. pretty early on that longer dated, particularly high net worth funders where there was rela- where there was a relationship of trust and integrity and I recall in year three, I won't name the organisation, it was a corporate kind of corporate-based foundation but they were quite interested in a partnership with SVA, and it would have been for us then quite a significant partnership. It was the, it was the order of three to four hundred thousand dollars, so it was meaningful dough. And but it was very clear in the conversation that they rotated their charity of choice annually, and they were a bit taken aback when I said, "What's the capacity for at least a three-year partnership?" And they said, "No, that's not the way we work." And I said, "Well, actually, that's not the way we work either." And I understand and respect if you don't feel you can do that, but frankly, in terms of the relationships we want to have, that mm. doesn't fit. Now, that wasn't an easy decision, but I, but I think it was absolutely the right one. Mm. Yeah, those big, brave moves that sort of set culture and, uh, and strategy. Mm. With the benefit um, of all your commercial and non-profit experience now, and it's, that goes into, you know, I don't know, is it 20-plus years or, or more, um, and you're still investing, you're still, you know, playing that role. When you see a social purpose organisation now, is there anything that you've learnt that you didn't know back then about is this an organisation that I would spend time on, that I would introduce to the people I know, that I would put my own money on? What What are you looking for that you perhaps, you know, anything else other than the things that you've talked about that helps you know look, smell, you know, is this an organisation that really can flourish? The cu- a couple of things, one of which I learnt from uh, Jan Owen to be very particular about, which is uh, I'm much more explicit now and I know SVA is around what's the evidence that you partner in the sector? Mm. And it's a really interesting question because there are many entrepreneurs, Jan used to call it terminal uniqueness syndrome, where the response of the social entrepreneur will be, oh, uh, what I'm doing is really unusual and very different and it might be a youth at risk program and if you interrogate that reality Jan could quickly Mm. disabuse me or others Mm. of the notion that actually there's another half a dozen or eight programs in working with pretty similar cohort of Mm. young people and Mm. doing things differently with different results slightly but you know significant overlap so that idea of and that's a really good testing question Mm. of um, how differentiated are you? What are your results? And and most effective social purpose organisations, in my view, are very explicit about partnering. So that was a, that was a big learning lesson. Um, secondly, I do think there's a common denominator of quality of leadership uh, alignment around accountability and metrics. So that I think is consistent across the sectors. Mm. 
So third thing, I get asked quite a lot, well, what's different in terms of what you might look for as to a business and social entrepreneur and the organisation's capacity to grow? I think there's a subtle but significant difference attached to the notion of scale in the social purpose world. And and the way I always characterise that is uh, to use the illustrative example in my Macquarie days, we did a lot of quite successful retail investing in companies Mm -hmm. like JB Hi-Fi, Miller's Fashion Club, The Reject Shop. And we learned quite a bit about retail and what drives retail success. And if you've got good head office, good leadership, good point of sale, the right site selection, you'll do well. Even if you're expanding into sites where you put a good but not necessarily great Mm. store manager, you'll do okay. Mm. That doesn't quite translate in the social purpose world. Because of relationships? Relationships on the ground and in Mm. community is deeply important. Mm. I think way more important than it is in the business sector Mm. because if you don't have that grassroots passion and engagement, and I always use the example of Beacon and Scott Harris who's been the very effective chief executive uh, there will say they learnt some very quick lessons that they just don't have the capacity to go into communities unless there's a school principal as leader who's deeply engaged in the community, mm-hmm. passionate about the Beacon offering and their work and knows how to drive that in the community. That has to be a core screen for them. Mm-hmm. And when they backed principals who were okay but not great they failed mm, and and so i think so that's i think mm. learning to explore that dimension of scale and growth is something that mm. is different mm. as between the sectors mm. yeah I, I recall some of those discussions from within sva uh, on that and on in the terms of leadership if we jump ahead to to sva and and sort of being within sva what did you want from your chair and board as a CEO, so you in the leadership role as opposed to the ventures that you were backing? What, do you th- what were you bringing as a CEO to that role? I think the engagement with the board's pretty critical. I mean, it always is. And I, I, my perspective around the board-CEO relationship is having worked in roles as a CEO, obviously, but in a lot of boards. And so I kind of, I'd like to think mm-hmm. I see it from both perspectives. There are three things that I think are fundamental. One is I think it's really important that a board support a chief executive. I think that's the key accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think if the board uh, has got the wrong chief executive, they need to do something about it. That's mm-hmm. pretty fundamental. Two, I think the board should appropriately challenge and push the CEO. I always like boards as a CEO where there was constructive, thoughtful challenge around what uh, you could do, how you could stretch. Mm. And I think the third thing, particularly in the social purpose world, is that you really want people around you who are genuinely passionate about what you are doing. Mm. And I think, in truth, if I'm if I'm being candid as CEO, the directors that kind of left me cold and didn't do much either for me or for the business were those that just either didn't really understand what SVA is about or they weren't passionate about it. Mm. And, you know, to be frank, they weren't that great for me or the organisation. Mm. And that's not to say you don't want challenge, you do, but it better come from a place of passion. Genuine interest. There's a, a lot of, you know, I hear uh, 
chairs kind of saying things like well but they're voluntary you know how we can't ask too much of them we can't set high expectations that they show up or that you know they give more than you know what's what's your take on that uh, well i think as you well know it's kind of a pet bugbear of mine i think if we want professional standards and high quality performing boards they, people like that shouldn't be on the on the board and um, mm. we did a lot of work and you're involved in a lot of that at SVA. Mm. I know around how do we test and create relationship opportunities where we know that somebody has walked that work of journey and understanding that there's a confidence that they can contribute and there's the fierce conversation so that when it when the time is right to invite somebody onto the board, there's clarity of understanding about what the expectations are mm. and the capacity nicely for that relationship to be ended if there's not contribution. Mm. And, you know, that fundamentally sits with a high-quality chair. Mm. But setting up governance structures, and I don't think they need to be heavy-handed. A lot of this is about the candid conversation so I think, again, it's all pretty simple stuff. Does it happen consistently or universally? Absolutely not. Yeah, and as you speak, it really, you know, reminds me of clients where the the fierce conversation I may have had with them is, you know, if that, that there's a kind of anxiety or nervousness to really back the organisation, that if I really believe in the organisation, wouldn't why wouldn't someone else? And if I am concerned about parts of the organisation, well, then the board must be engaged to help address that rather than saying, well, we're not perfect, therefore we can't attract fantastic people. You know? Yeah, and I think clarity of expectations. I do think certainly in the social purpose boards or at SVA, there was an expectation that there be probably a slightly higher degree of more engage, of engagement and more hands-on involvement. So still the principle of noses in, fingers out, I think, for boards is very relevant. You don't want <laughs> boards second-guessing micromanaging at all that's destructive or it can be but if there's clear understanding about the value that high quality board directors can add that i was certainly on the a recipient of that in many ways mm. at sva and as chair of good start which is a much larger scale organization we're the largest provider of early learning and childcare. next year we'll do a billion dollars in revenue we have thirteen thousand staff so it's a one of the largest scale social enterprises in the world. But we have a very clear set of expectations with each director about where they're expected to be more involved at bring their unique, important skills. And that's hugely valued by the CEO and the management team. And yes, there's a set of protocols to ensure that we don't cross appropriate governance boundaries, but mm. we're quite explicit about that. We're just going through a board succession process at Good Start, mm. and that's prompted a really good quality conversation about the nature of those expectations, the values and the culture fit that we want mm. from people who are, who are joining. And I, and I do think that's, you know, quite quite different from uh, possibly a more extensive focus on governance and compliance that seems to have evolved in the business and the larger scale business world, which I find uh, pretty alarming, frankly. Mm. More on the strictures and policemen and the anxiety kind of risk side and less on the strategic uh, involvement and vision and skills? Well, absolutely. My, you know, mm. my friends who are on bigger company boards, and I've had a bit of experience of that, uh, the, you know, ploughing your way through the three to 400 pages mm. of essentially governance and compliance. And it's not, mm. not, not, I wouldn't say it's 
my natural strength or skill set, but it's also not my idea of fun or strategic value add to the to the business. And I think um, we've lost our way a bit on that. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people who've got deep experience around that who would share that view. As you talk about your role as a CEO and then becoming a, um, you know, in your relationship with the chair and what you were looking for and then moving into being a chair chair yourself, uh, and I'm thinking of Good Start here and other roles, uh, what is it that, you know, and I have this conversation with numerous chairs where the chair role is sometimes perceived to be one of sort of the gatekeeper between the board and the non-profit executive team. Uh, and perhaps uh, as they look for chairs, they're looking for people who are well-connected but not necessarily good conductors of opinion or capable of and comfortable with the fierce conversation. What's your, what are you enjoying about being a chair and what do you think you're bringing in other great chairs that you've seen? What do they bring that's so important in that role? I think, uh, well, your, your and my mutual colleague Duncan Peppercorn did a lot of interesting work about what connotes a good chair and what not. And there are a lot of, there was that uh, five or six bullet points and it included things like being prepared to be a good listener, mm. good at getting decisions out of a group, building consensus. Um, I think to your point, I certainly see the role, and this would be consistent with some of the things Duncan figured, particularly in the social purpose world, as being more an enabler and a facilitator than a traffic cop. And that's not in any way to trivialise the whole buck stops with the chair and board about the most critical decision any organisation makes, which is have we got the right chief executive? Mm -hmm. And if that's not the case and you've got a chair and board who aren't doing anything about that, they fail and they Mm -hmm. fail substantially. And I think we've all seen our share of that. What I'm enjoying and learning about being chair, it is a different sort of role and I've, uh, I frankly, cha- but you know, I find parts of that really rewarding and interesting. Parts of it challenging. I think in my midlife, having jumped ship to SVA, what I learned about myself was that I'm probably a bit more entrepreneurial than I might have imagined in my younger years. Mm. And so, being the entrepreneur or the idea generator, you have to tread very carefully in terms of how that sits mm. as chair. And um, I think I think the idea of uh, working constructively with a CEO and having the capacity to have open conversations where those inevitable clunky bits arise that are often personality driven and uh, you know look I'll be very open about it. I think I've got a, a an excellent personal and professional relationship with the Good Start mm-hmm. CEO Julia Davison, but it means a lot to us to have somebody to help uh, who happens to be. Uh, somebody who's on the board and there's a couple of people on the board who can really help uh, as kind of a mediator facilitator where we have issues or disagreements about things so I you know so I think being able to do that effectively and having a continuing an open mind and again that's not in any way to back away from the kind of hard responsibilities or accountabilities um, and to the point about that staff engagement enablement and I think it's monitoring that and there are occasions where I found as chair of Good Start being close enough and developing a culture of trust, accountability, where you know uh, with a high degree of confidence that individual board members can engage with the senior management and there's transparency and clarity around that. But I think 
For us at Good Start, and I think if you interviewed Julia, I'd be confident she'd say that's been a generator of a huge amount of value Mm. for her and for the team. And so unless you're prepared to open up those conversations and tap the extraordinary skills that exist around that board table, we've got such an eclectic, interesting group of people, you know, Greg Hutchinson, who was a managing partner of Bain Consulting and is a has got deep, deep coaching skills as well. Rob mm-hmm. Koskar, around a multi-billion dollar private equity fund. Wendy McCarthy, who's one of the doyens of social change and hugely respected social purpose and non-profit leader, June McLaughlin and um, Lynn Wannan, who've got really deep sector and early learning experience. Mm-hmm. So there's a fabulous skill set there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea to me that you'd sit around that board table and not try and engage those people more deeply is just a waste of talent and Mm. that's the last thing we can afford to do at Good Start given the scope of our mission. Mm. Fantastic. Um, One of the things I've fascinated me and it comes up as a theme regularly with uh, the organisations I work with, uh, curious whether it it may or may not be present at Good Start uh, and possibly less so because of your way that Good Start came about, but it, it kind of... Tension, I think, for NDIS organisations that are under the pressure of funding and, and, and all other organisations that are sort of feeling the heat financially as government perhaps withdraws, is this sense that there's a, and you've talked about the head and heart, you know, often through the years that I've known you, and, uh, that, that there's a sense that in a way the heart is the frontline staff and the head's the executive and that in the pressure to become commercially viable, you know, and innovative and being able to be nimble and customer-centric, that this that that's construed in a way by the frontline staff as being head staff that leaves out the heart staff. You've got such a fascinating, you know, and kind of unique. I mean, there are more people coming through that move from the commercial sector to the non-profit. But as you think about that dilemma, how do you construe it? And, you know, and I don't know if it may or may not be relevant at Goods a good start as well. I think it's I think it's very relevant and I think that idea of head heart alignment is profoundly important. My my experience has been and I think that's the power of what sits at the heart of SVA and also Good Start is that if you've got the an eclectic mix of people who come from different backgrounds and you're very clear and thoughtful about defining what your core purpose is and the balance in something like Good Start where uh, if we weren't successful at a commercial financial level in turning the business around and making money, we were going to have incredibly limited opportunities to do what we wanted to do mm-hmm. on the social purpose. The two are inextricably linked, mm-hmm. I think powerfully brought to life by one of the founding non-profit CEOs, Tony Nicholson, who said, well, if we do a great job of quality, I'm absolutely certain it'll have positive collateral benefits in terms of the economics of the business. And, of course, he was right. So mm-hmm. I think in many cases the idea that there's some dichotomy between head and heart is false if you uh, uh, yes of course there will be tensions that arise but if you've got the open conversation and there's clarity around where the organization's at in terms of priority uh, prioritizing those things mm-hmm. I, I do believe you can hold those things in balance and it comes back to the scorecard metrics i think we've done a, a pretty decent but still evolving job at good start of his financial purpose metrics his social purpose targets and being very clear about how those two things sit together and as you know at sva we've had a bunch of experience the big big chunk of the work in sva consulting has been around metrics and measurement of mm. performance particularly using very powerful tools like social return on investment mm. and i think the beauty of that is that it 
defines alignment and clarity around what is core purpose. And I think if social purpose organisations have got clarity around what success looks like, it's amazing how many other things start to fall Mm. into place in driving organisational priorities and resources. Yeah, and I mean, you know, so what resonates for me so strongly is, is is that if you've got, in a sense, in your board an encapsulation of that dynamic, of that tension and the capacity to have the robust conversation and the the dance and the, you know, pull and push about social and prof- profit and profitability and sustainability, then that you've got a, uh, you know, a metaphor and an example, a culture-setting example from the very top about embracing both, both of these things and holding them as uh, inextricably linked and, and connected. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's fair to say we certainly saw that at SVA and I referred to the effectiveness of the uh, fact that Jan and I kind of at a superficial level come from two completely different worlds but at SVA in good start in a bunch of the most effective things we've been involved in Beacon, Jack Manning Bancroft's Australian <laughs> Indigenous Mentoring Experience, Michael Coombs at Career Trackers. Why have they been standout successes? It's because they look around corners, they draw talent from across the sectors and they genuinely use the best mm-hmm. of both worlds in building thriving sustainable funding and revenue models but at the heart of it is absolute clarity and about the ambition of their social purpose mission so Mm. i've learned to be wary of the social purpose ceos who uh, push back hard on sensible Mm. engagement with business uh, just as i've learned to be wary of the commercial hard heads who put a toe in the water in the sector and say it's all hearts and flowers and these people aren't interested. Well, it might be the fact that that person with a commercial background hasn't had the capacity to do what I was advised to do, which is be careful about walking that journey of understanding uh, and avoid the trap of throwing early gratuitous business fix-it advice. And I've certainly seen plenty Mm. of that. Yeah, that uh, deep, deep mutual respect of both and how if they're they work together well, you create something greater. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for one of the core values at the Good Start Board, which is the idea with that group of people who are pretty impressive heavyweight group of people. I think everybody would say they've learnt a huge amount from others at the table and they've particularly learnt from those who come from a very different mm. background. So that notion of a shared journey and learning, it changes the shape of mm. conversations and that doesn't happen overnight. As with all those things, I think it's fair to say through the Good Start journey and elsewhere, that notion of the storming, forming, norming, but that process of genuine engagement, open and fierce conversation gets to a place of, I think, a much richer, much more informed set of conversations that deeply help the purpose of the organisation. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and it takes... a. Uh a lot of uh, self-awareness I think is it you know to be able to have really reflected on yourself and what you care about what you're bringing how you're showing up the judgments that you're making of others so Michael this brings us to the final question I had for you um and I agree with you it's the, the tide's turning that there's a greater professionalism in the sector um, and a greater comfort with the notion of capability and capacity building in the sector. Because of the nature of our work, people confide in us and sometimes along the spectrum of completely toxic cultures where people feel a sort of grinding despair that things will ever change and that there's a willingness to change. 
um, to just a moderate sense of mm, we don't know if we'll ever be up for this. So I'm really curious. Um, this, it seems to me, and I'm interested in your opinion, that you know, good leadership from what you've said and flourishing cultures provide organisations with a chance to do so much more, to be so much more successful than they might have imagined. Um, what questions should leaders ask themselves um, so they get a really true read on how they're doing? And sort of a corollary to that, what do chairs and boards you know, need to be asking themselves and each other so they're not complicit in holding organisations back? I think that's a really important question. My response is that I think to test effectively where you're at as a leader and where the organisation's at requires a quality of self-awareness and an honesty about testing how you're performing as a chief executive and how the organisation's perceived in, internally and externally. Mm. I think for me there are two sanity checks on that that I tried to be attentive to. One was to always have one or two what I called inner voices. So they'd be trusted voices, somebody or a couple of people on the team uh, who you knew had good judgment, who had the ear of a broader audience than you might. I think you need to be very conscious as a CEO that you might only get sanitised feedback, that you, you can cast a bigger set of footprints than you might think, and you don't always necessarily get honest feedback, and sometimes far from it. So having people who are trusted insiders who can give you that feedback in a pretty uncoded way I found very powerful. The second on the board front, and you tread carefully here because I think there's a line about board involvement which is noses in, fingers out, which I think is important. Having said that, I always found, and uh, in particular in my last five years at SVA, Richard Spencer uh, was a, a highly valued board member, but Richard also has got particular skills as a kind of coach and facilitator. He was trusted by the senior team and by me, and there were a couple of occasions where Richard had the ability um, to get feedback from senior team and facilitated a couple of sessions that were very helpful in terms of providing that counsel and feedback, trusted by me, trusted by the senior team where he could provide honest feedback to me and to them about what was working and what wasn't, you know, what was tricky, what we can do differently and better. And I found that enormously valuable. Mm. That doesn't have to be somebody on the board. In that case, it was. Mm. But I think setting up those sort of opportunities in an earlier iteration of mm. SVA when we were doing a thorough strategic review, Ken Gibson, who was external and a highly rated former McKinsey partner, performed that role. Mm. So I think those checks around board... Uh, external, internal are really valuable. I think there's a third component of that, which is testing uh, thoroughly the, how the organisation is coming across externally. And, and every few years at SVA, we get somebody, retain somebody to do that and get feedback from broad stakeholder audiences. And, and I, I think that was highly valuable in terms of uh, reality check and how we were pursued by different parts of the sector. So those are conversations, candid conversations with funders, with organisations we were working with and supporting and with the sector more broadly because our reputation in terms of who we were and what we're trying to do is very important and if there's a dissonance between what you think you're doing and how you're actually perceived, then you need to be aware of it and make judgments about whether you've got to change your messaging or change what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. That that um, that strong piece of, of the reality check really know how people inside your organisation are feeling and perceiving things and, and outside. Thank you, Michael. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm walking away with a couple of memorable takeaways. 
let's see if I've missed anything, but I think that, you know, the, the make or break of a chair and a board is to get the right CEO and your words to, to fail at this at your peril, to really escalate and put that that job at the very top of the list is really, really powerful and resonates for me. Um, the chair's job to support the CEO, to pick the right person and then back that person um, and be supportive but also know that good leaders want to be challenged. They want to be growing Absolutely. in a positive and supportive way. Mm. Um, I love your point about requiring value from your directors and that the chair's role partly is actually just harnessing that value. So get good va- get good people and then really use that um, use that talent uh, for the organisation's benefit. Uh, I'm fascinated with this topic of head and heart. It comes up so often in um, our client work and uh, your point around have it reflected in your board. So have the balance of the head and the heart, the sort of, you know, however you conceptualise that, sustainability, care, dynamic, um, and watch for demonising or sidelining any of those. And that interesting example you bring of Jan and you actually sort of personifying that metaphor, you know, at the top of the organisation and the power of that. Um, And then your points about the commercial transitioners and investors and others from the commercial sector and being really careful to screen tightly for your own judgments. Mm. Um, And not just for the cause, but for the history of the organisation and the expertise. Mm. Is there anything I've missed? No, that's uh, terrific. (laughs) I've I've really enjoyed the conversation and that's a much more elegant and succinct summary than what I've managed to put together. So thank you. I've enjoyed the opportunity to chat. Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. Our conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you.